there's some areas in life you're supposed to trust your gut. You know, your instincts probably good, probably helpful. You know, multiple choice tests. They always say, go with the first answer, you go back and change it, you miss it, that kind of thing. Um, I like that theory of life, probably because it uh, works with my laziness, just to go with my gut. But one of the places where going with your gut works worst, and I mean inevitably, almost universally badly, is with religion. Um, your instincts are terrible. And my instincts are terrible. Even when they're not the same as each other, they're all still bad, right? It's, uh, it's strange that as good as your instincts are in some things, that religiously your instincts are as bad as they are. It's, uh, you sure saw it around Jesus coming to earth, because like all of our songs say, you know, there's a big expectation that there was going to be a Messiah come for Israel Oh, we sing about, come thou long-expected Jesus, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, to ransom captive Israel, and all, all these songs. And people were looking for the Messiah, but boy, they weren't looking for the kind of Messiah that God was sending. And everybody that ran into Jesus that had any kind of religious background or instincts found themselves at odds with what he actually said that he came to do and be. He was bringing a rescue that almost no one felt that they needed. And people, you know, tripped over him in different ways, but everybody tripped over him. And we've been looking during Advent at some succinct statements in the Scripture that say this is why Jesus came to earth. Um, that he came to save sinners, that he came to give his life as a ransom for many, uh, that he came to destroy the works of the devil is one. And today we're going to be in Matthew 5, uh, which is in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says in it that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And uh, this one may take a little more explaining than some of the others have, but I promise you I'll do this lucidly and rivetingly. And so you'll just you'll feel like the time passes in an instant. So, but we've already talked about what does it mean that Jesus came to fulfill everything that had happened before in God's dealings with his people in the Old Testament. So let me pray for us, and then we'll uh, read the scripture. Father, please um, have mercy on us. Come help us, speak to us. We pray that you would break through with the words of your Son, through through the uh, assumptions that we have that really um, don't help us in our thinking about relationship with you. And that you'd let us see you as you are, and let us find the hope in your Son that you offer. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Read beginning at verse 17 of Matthew 5, down to verse 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to ask you a question and then give you a roundabout answer to it. Did Jesus found a new religion when he came to earth? 
Is he the founder of a new religion? So to answer that, I would like to bring up the subject of, of uh, planned obsolescence, which is, I'm sure, where you thought I was going. Um, you know what planned obsolescence is. Uh, companies will uh, build in a uh, short deterioration into product so that you'll have to buy a new one before long. Right? I think uh, General Motors gets the most credit for it usually by introducing a new style of car every year. Henry Ford didn't want to do that. He prized the efficiency of doing it the same way well over and over. But GM realized if you, if you make the cars more stylish the next year, people are going to want one. And pretty soon they'll buy another car before they need another car. And that plan has worked pretty well, I would say. Uh, but planned obsolescence, it's a little bit of a devious trick on the consumer. Um, some of them are insidious, like iPhone. I hesitate to say anything about iPhone, but you know, they would build into their software updates uh, software that would slow down older iPhones so you would trade up and get a new one sooner. Which you could see as clever, you could see as insidious. Uh, I'll leave that to you. It feels a little insidious. And uh, over at the Eller School of Management, they would call this a... Uh, They'd say there's an informational asymmetry that's built into the customer-producer relationship because the producer of the product knows something that the consumer doesn't know. That is, that this plastic part is going to break before long, and it's kind of supposed to. Yeah. So that's kind of the dark side of planned obsolescence. Um, that's the desirability. Like, if you make something less desirable or if you make something that's going to break... Uh, really quickly, then that's kind of the mean uh, part of obsolescence. There's a good side of planned obsolescence, though, that comes up in some areas, uh, which is basically functional. Now, there's something works for as long as you need it to, but you don't need it to keep working for that long. Like training wheels have functional obsolescence built into them. You don't need them for very long, hopefully. You know, you, uh, eventually you get rid of them, not because they're defective. Usually they're sitting in the garage for years after you need them, after the last kid. But they're obsolescent. You don't need them anymore. And um, all of that, as I'm sure you figured out, is uh, an answer to the question of, did Jesus come to found a new religion? Because the answer is mostly no. He didn't. There are things that his coming made functionally obsolete. Uh, but he didn't start a new religion. He came to fulfill, to uh, live out, to bring to completion uh, the one big story of God's work in the world that has unfolded all through the Old Testament. He came to fulfill it. And so um, I want us to unpack that a little bit and talk about how it tends to go against the assumptions we have. Especially the people who heard Jesus, they all were frustrated by him and what he said about these things. Uh, how he was explaining life with God and how that related to the Old Testament and things like that. And so uh, we'll talk about how, what that means and what it means for us a little bit. The first kind of people that struggled, though, with what Jesus said uh, were people who heard him and thought, this is completely new. He's talking about God in ways that are new to me, and I didn't like most of the old, super scrupulous Old Testament observance religion anyway. I'm excited because this is something new, and it's altogether different. You know, we're going to look at the what's gone before and say, that was then, but this is now. Right, that was then, this is now. Um, you know, and 
They didn't like the super scrupulous people. You know, some of the religious experts around the time of Jesus, you know, they had 600 some odd codified laws that they derived from the Old Testament, rules that you have to keep, and they were very judgy and myopic. You know, it's like they, they couldn't tell that they stunk of self-righteousness, even though everybody else could tell it. They seemed to care more about being right than being loving. And so some people react against that, as we do today, right? You, you run into people like that. Some of you love that, and some of you hate it. And you think, I don't like that super scrupulous, really rigorous, it makes you culturally weird kind of Christianity. I don't want that kind of religion in my life. Um, I generally think I'm a good person and that God's probably okay with that. And all of this attention to rigorous, scrupulous, detailed observance of laws and codes uh, just feels somehow uh, viscerally different than the idea of being a good person that God loves. Um, and in this way of thinking through the ages of the church, people kind of sort of dropped into thinking that, well, in the Old Testament, God was mean and strict, and now in the New Testament, He's nice and gracious. And so people that were hearing Jesus thinking that that's what He was going to say, um, sure, that being, being a good person still matters. You know, you better not cry, you better not pout, and all that, but it's not like it's that important, right? You know, Jesus knows that we're all good little boys and girls. What did Elvis say? Sam knows we're all God's children and that makes everything right. <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of a more of a sentimental approach to religion. And they thought, hey, Jesus is coming to sponsor that kind of a approach to God, an approach to religion, and I like it. And then he says in the Sermon on the Mount, don't think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I didn't. Um, anybody who relaxes the smallest thing. Uh, jot or tittle, as it says in the King James. Here it says an iota or a dot. The smallest thing in the Law of the Prophets, which is his way of talking about the Old Testament. Anybody that relaxes any of that, least in the kingdom of heaven. Right? And those who teach it are great in the kingdom of heaven. Um, so dang it, that doesn't work, right? Um, he's not saying that God's nice now and you don't have to worry about the scruples and the rules and the Old Testament's just passe. Uh, so, that's frustrating. There are some changes from the Old Testament to the New. The training wheel kind of fulfillment things are different. You know, he says, uh, I didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And all these things will be in place until they're accomplished. And some of those things in Jesus' first coming are already accomplished. So we don't have a temple anymore because Jesus said, hey, I'm the temple. The temple was about me. It pointed to me. You know, when he, he told me, he said, if you tear down this building in three days, I'll build it again. And they all thought he meant the building of the temple, but he, he said, no, that, that's me. I'm the temple now. That's what it pointed to. I'm God with you, Emmanuel. I'm the temple. The Passover meal. Uh, he said, this was pointing to me. I'm the lamb of sacrifice in the Passover. I'm, it's my blood over your doorframe, if you know the story from uh, the Exodus. Uh, he said, all that was pointing to me, anticipating me. Uh, there's no calendar needed anymore that was the, the series of uh, festivals and feasts that were required in the Old Testament. Kosher food is not required anymore. Uh, he declared all foods cling to their changes. Not, he wasn't saying, no, that was what stupid primitive people believed, and you don't have to believe that anymore because you're modern. No, he said, no, those, those things were pointing to me, but I'm here now, so we don't need them anymore. You, those are training wheels. 
But the law, the Old Testament, all, it's, that's still there. This is not a new religion. Um, I'm fulfilling it, building on it, you know, bringing it to life here. And this is hard for people who like a looser Christianity where you can say, like, I like Jesus and I'm trying to be a good person. There are things ethically that he says and that the Bible says that I don't really like very much. They don't seem cool. They, they don't match my sensibilities about what's right and wrong. And so I'm just going to not bother with those things, but I'm still, you know, still going to be a really spiritual person. And that's a pretty normal way to think. It's a natural instinct people have about religion. But when you read what Jesus says here, he's saying, no, that's not, that's not what I came to bring you. That's not the kind of help you need. That's not the kind of thing that's going to set you in good standing with God. And also, kind of goes against sentimental Christianity where you just feel like you don't have to be that serious about God, serious about being reverent, serious about His law, uh, because somehow those things just don't matter much. It's just, it's just feeling like I have a sweet heart, you know, that God notices and appreciates. And Jesus really doesn't allow us that kind of option either. So people who thought it was all new, that uh, that was then, this is now, he rules out with what he says here. And then there are others who said, uh, nothing's new at all with Jesus. Like, that was then and this is then. <laughs> you know, we're... Nothing's changing. He's just come to double down on the law. He's just come to congratulate the scrupulous and say, you know, try even harder. That's what he's doing. Yeah. They were thinking, you know, when they heard Jesus, is he, he's talking different. Is he going to slack off on the law? Is he going to say the law doesn't really matter that much? Gosh, I hope not, you know, and if he does, I'm, I'm a little wary and suspicious of him because it seems like that's what he's trying to say, is that the law doesn't matter that much anymore. And for people who are very zealous and devout and who get their whole sense of who they are from being good religiously, being very scrupulous, keeping the law, very devout, very zealous, full of devotion, for them, the idea that you're going to say anything that slacks off on the law at all is terrible because that makes you... You're an unfaithful kind of rabbi or minister. You're, you're a bad person. We don't want anything to do with that. Uh, we want you to take this as seriously as we do, maybe even more. Right? And so when they're listening to Jesus, they're thinking, what's he saying? Because it sounds different. Is he for us or is he against us? Right? Is he on our side or is he on the other side? You know, is, is he in our brand of the Presbyterian Church or the other brand of the Presbyterian Church? They're trying to, they're trying to peg him, you know. Is he who would he think he is or not? And he starts off like this, and he says, don't think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. And they're like, yes, good. I was worried that you did come to abolish the law of the prophets. I'm glad you're not. Jot and tittle, dot and iota, you can't, you mean you believe the whole Bible's inspired by God even down to the, to the uh, punctuation? <laughs> yes, you're our man, right? This is what we're hoping to hear. We're worried you're a little fuzzy on these things. Good to hear these things. Great. Whoever teaches them is great in the kingdom. Whoever uh, relaxes them is loose in the kingdom. That's what we've been saying. Those slackers are, are relaxing the law. They're liberals. And it's terrible. And if your righteousness doesn't exceed the scribes and Pharisees, you won't go to heaven. What? <laughs> All of a sudden, that's totally different. Wait a minute. We were tracking... What are you talking about? 
if your righteousness doesn't exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, those are the best people. Clearly. Just ask them. Uh, you know, but, they, but everybody else falls so too. They're the most scrupulous people. They're the ones where if you cussed around them, you, you'd apologize instinctively. Right? Because you oh, sorry. And uh, everybody thought, and they thought, that they were the best at keeping the law and the best at being Jewish and religious. Because they were. They were. So what in the world is Jesus saying to them uh, when he says, righteousness exceed their righteousness? He's, he's digging at a couple of things in that. Uh, that they have to see that go against their assumptions about life and the world and go against a lot of our assumptions about life and the world. Uh, one is, he said, you know, Rewind just a little bit and see what I said. I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And to fulfill the law is not equivalent to keep the law. Jesus did keep the law. But he said he didn't say, I came to um, keep the law. And he didn't say, I came to teach the law, although he did that too. But he said, I came to fulfill the law. Fulfill the law. Now, the way they thought about it as good religious people was our job is to obey as best we can, as fully as we can. And the rabbi's job is to motivate us, inspire us, and threaten us so that we will obey, right? And that's not what Jesus was doing. Jesus basically said, as scrupulous as you are religiously, you need more than that. That is not enough to make you right with God. As good as you are, you're not good enough. You need a different kind of help. You need someone to come fulfill the law for you. Amen. Both its, uh, its demands that you really haven't kept and its curse. The burden that our guilt places on us because we haven't kept God's law. Even these people trying hard haven't kept God's law. They need a, a different kind of way to be righteous or okay or clean before God. And that is, they needed, to, they needed to have it as a gift from Jesus rather than an accomplishment in their own morality. And, man, the idea for people who try really hard, who try a lot harder than the people around them, the idea that they can't be proud of themselves for trying so hard, but they actually have to humble themselves and receive a gift from God, it's very hard to bear. And it you know, strips the gears in your brain because you just don't, it doesn't feel like that's true. And when Jesus said these things, they rejected it. Right? That just made it furious. Saying, you should be congratulating us. We're the good people. We're the ones who sacrificed to be on God's side. And he's saying that's not enough. It's not enough. You need to have a Savior come and rescue you by grace. And that's what I've come to do. And, and the second thing he said to them, which was even more galling maybe, is that with all your attention to the law, you've misunderstood it. Like, you're bad at reading the Bible. And you, like, that's your thing, is reading the Bible. And you're bad at it. And you've, you've just misconstrued it by the way you're reading. Um, because it's about me. I came to fulfill the law. It was all pointing to me. And if you try to understand it, and outside of that context, you're not going to understand it. You're going to misconstrue it. If you read it other than with eyes of who the Messiah really is and what he came to do, uh, you're gonna, you'll, you'll abstract things from the Old Testament, little ethical rules or religious practices, 
and think that just keeping them, if you do it scrupulously and right, matters. But if you, if you miss the connection of how they point you to your need of a Savior like Jesus, then you're going to mess up the way you think about the law, and you're going to misread the history of Israel. You know, you're going to be looking for heroes in the stories in the Old Testament and realizing that nobody is one, you know, and wondering why, because all of those things were pointing to him. He says if you, if, you, if you don't see the big story, you're going you're to miss all the details and get them wrong. When I was in high school, the Eagles came out with Hotel California, this album, and uh, we all thought, whoa, that's a great album. So, and then we would talk at, high, at school, what do, you, what do you think it's about? What do you think Hotel California is? Is it, is it addiction? Is it hell? Eventually I found out what it's about. Hotel California actually, when you look at it, represents California. <laughs> Which is really interesting. Right? But it really does sort of inform how you understand things like what the steely beast is they're trying to kill with knives, or, you know, uh, what does it mean that you can't check out? And you still may have things in the song you don't understand, but you're going to understand way less if you don't know what the song's about. Right? And Jesus is saying everything in the story of God with his people from Genesis on is about me. It's a story about me. And if you don't understand that, you're not likely to read it well. Right? The promise is all along that God's going to come to the rescue of his rebellious, vandalizing people who've ruined his creation, broken their relationship with him. He said, I'm coming. I'm going to crush the head of the serpent. He said in the Genesis 3, right at the beginning. And he told Abraham at the beginning of Abraham's family to become Israel, I'm going to bless all the nations on earth through you. I'm going to rescue the, the whole world through your family. And then uh, all the history of Israel went through with uh, Moses as the great uh, prophet and David as the great king, but not that great. Uh, all anticipating one who's going to come after. The prophets saying, look, you haven't understood, you haven't uh, kept... You haven't been loyal to God and all that He's revealed. You need someone to come to your rescue. You need a Messiah. And Jesus says, all those things are me. Right? And if you try to read all that without relating it to me, you're going to misread it. And you're going to come up with some kind of a scrupulous religion that isn't really a vital connection to God. All right? So, um, and so this is what religious leaders did. You know, Jesus argued with them all the time about how they were misconstruing their religion. He'd say things like, look, you can't tell what's important and what's less important. You know, what's very important and less important with laws. Like, you think it's as important to, you know, scrupulously tithe your agricultural seeds uh, as it is to do justice to the people who work for you. And how do you get so skewed that you can't tell the difference between the importance of those things? Jesus said, you know, he says, because you don't relate it to me. You have attitudes in your life that you, you, you do these scrupulous points of religious obedience, but then you look around and despise other people and are self-righteous and proud about it. Like, don't you see something that's broken in that? You know, but they didn't because they weren't relating uh, the law to what it showed, which is they need a Savior like Jesus. They just thought they needed the law and some motivation to keep it. And he said, no, the law... The law that you've used as your resume is actually an indictment against you. 
Like it's the law that you have prized and been proud of that is your problem with God. You haven't kept it. We had, this was earlier culture war days in Alabama. We had a politician there who later came to infamy, but uh, he was, his big thing was to have this big rock with a plaque of the Ten Commandments on it uh, placed in a courthouse in Alabama. You know, Ten Commandments, and, and it was very well received by a lot of the religious community in the state. They thought, well, the Ten Commandments, yeah, we're for the Ten Commandments. I had a, a friend who had a bumper sticker on his car I never asked him about, but it, he was a minister, and the bumper sticker said, keep the Ten Commandments. And uh, I thought with both those things, well, have you, have you read the Ten Commandments? <laughs> like, um, do you think you keep the Ten Commandments? Do you, do you think that your display of them uh, makes them something other than they are, which is certainly true the way we're supposed to live before God, but also the reasons that we have a problem with God because we don't keep these commandments. <laughs> we don't keep them. And yeah, Jesus goes on in the Sermon on the Mount right after this to, to show him that. He says, well, you know, there's a commandment against murder, but that means you... You can't hate people and call them fools, right? Because you've committed murder in your heart. There's a commandment against adultery, but if you lust after somebody else, you've committed adultery in your heart. You're not doing well with these commandments. These are a problem for you. Right? These are a problem for you. That's why it, it shows up because most of the time when people put the plaque of the Ten Commandments on the courthouse or on the wall, they start this way. One, you shall have no gods before me. Two, no graven images. But how did the Ten Commandments start in Exodus and Deuteronomy? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, have no gods before me. And if you don't have the preface, you don't get the point of the Ten Commandments, right? It is, you are in a relationship with me by my mercy. I gave you this relationship with me. This is what loving me looks like now. As a result of my grace in your life, my mercy in your life, now I want you to live this way more and more. Uh, when you just start with number one and lay out the rules, what you hear is, do these things, God will appreciate it and like you. And that's what people who heard Jesus thought. Um, so, I'm completely lost. I started rambling. Um, <laughs> here's a similar way of misunderstanding the Christmas sentiments that we have peace on earth uh, love and goodwill between people shalom in the world peace in our relationships with each other we talk about at Christmas the toppling of tyrants and the vindication of the oppressed and all these things we talk about them at Christmas and they are all good things right but um, it's pretty easy when you read these things on the Christmas cards and all to say, well, these are things God likes. He likes peace on earth. He likes shalom between people. He likes the toppling of tyrants. He, so I guess we should do those things for him because he likes them. Jesus sure didn't do them when he was here. The world's still full of uh, rancor. Tyrants are still doing well. There's not a lot of peace on earth and goodwill to men. Um, so those must be aspirational. We should do this for him. But that's not at all what he says. 
He says, these things are promised and that they will be accomplished, he says, in, at the end of verse 18. Um, and a lot of the law, even some of the training wheels, will still be on until these things are accomplished. But these are things he's going to do for us instead of things that he demands of us. And even when we participate, even when we do try morally, even when we are observant religiously, this is a religion about what he's done for us, not a religion about what we do for him. Just not. This is a religion that's all gift. It's all grace. It's all what Jesus has come to give us. And that message doesn't resonate with hardly anybody. You know, it goes against our instincts. Like I say, sentimental people are told that your sweet, kind heart isn't enough to make you right with God. And we think, I want my sweet, kind heart to be enough to make me right with God. Conservative people are told that their discipline and rigor, that they're holding uh, fast to the truth, is not enough to make them right with God. And they say, it ought to be enough. I want my rigor and discipline to be enough to make me right with God. And liberals get told that their collective action in the world is not going to bring the kingdom of God. And they say, what about our songs that say, if we just all get together and work, we can make things happen. I want that to be true. But it's not enough. It's not enough. Uh, The good news of Christmas, the good news of the gospel of Jesus is that Jesus is enough. What he's come to do, what he's come to give us, uh, is enough for us to be right with God. Like the old uh, hymn says, uh, Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die. Another's life, another's death. On this I stake my eternity.